afternoon for a Bloom conference, a fundraising event. There's all sorts of strange noises up here. <laughs> and outside of that, the other thing I need to tell you is next Sunday we're going to start our Transform series. And we couldn't get them available for this Sunday, but I've got to pick them up tomorrow. We'll have some copies of a journal, a workbook, if you like, available. I commend that to you. It has both an outline of each of the talks that we will give, has memory verses, it has small group material, it has a brilliant spiritual self-assessment in the back of about four pages. If you wanted to start a very small group just to do this seven-week series, it's got guidelines in there, ten pages worth of information to show you, uh, to guide you through that. And we're going to be looking at uh, being transformed in all areas of our life. I'm just trying to look for where there's one whole list of it. Spiritual health, that's what we'll start with next week. <clears throat> and then each following week have physical health, mental health, emotional health. Then I think we have a gap where we're going to do a special service on um, the next generation across all of our services. And then we return to the series on, I think, relational health, financial health, and then vocational health. So seven areas of our lives, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, relational, financial, and work, vocational. So I commend that to you. Cost, you can go to Coorong and pick one of those up yourself. Uh, don't go to Springwood. You could go to Wollongabba. Um, cost you about 20 bucks if you do that. Or you can buy it through me and I'll give it to you for 15. How's that for a deal? Um, or if you're really, really nice, I might give it to you for even less. If you're not, then 15 bucks. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, no, we're not. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's what happens when New South Wales loses again. Somebody asked me, was I cold this morning? I said, no, I'm just trying to cover the shirt up. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for all the good things that you do for us and even the strength and the purposes that you achieve through the difficult times and the struggles. We ask this morning that you would help us to be aware of your presence. We ask again, Lord, that you would be pleased to open our eyes and our hearts to perceive and to receive your word, your message to us, and so that we might align our lives with your will and that we might be transformed into followers of the Lord Jesus, passionate followers of him. We pray this in his name. And everybody said... Apostle Paul is following on in chapter 10. He's still continuing his argument all the way from chapter 8 and concludes it in this chapter. But he has just mentioned at the end of chapter 9 about running the race and running in such a way as to get the prize and not being disqualified. Then he continues, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food 
drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, even with all of those spiritual privileges, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. We shouldn't commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble if some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things again happened to them as examples and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Not fall from salvation, but fall into sin. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to everybody, humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You say, I have the right to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. Again, you say, I have the right to do anything. But not everything is constructive. No one should seek just their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in Woolworths and Coles. <laughs> without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring, of course, to their conscience, the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, 
Why am I being denounced because of something that I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew or Greek or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, he says in the next verse, as I follow the example of Christ. Some of the Corinthians would appear to be a little bit overconfident of their spiritual state and status. We're reading Paul's response to a letter that they wrote, so we're guessing what they wrote and what their attitudes were based upon what he says. So there's a little bit of conjecture and guesswork that goes into this. Some of the Corinthians were a little bit overconfident. They probably were saying things like, we've been baptised, so we're now one with the Lord Jesus. We've had the Lord's Supper. We eat the bread, we drink the wine, we are participating with the Lord. We are in him and he is in us. Therefore, we are safe, spiritually safe, secure. And therefore, we can do whatever we like. We can do anything. Nothing can harm us, not spiritually. Nothing is a danger to us. Paul is addressing that sort of attitude. And his argument is basically that people can certainly have great blessings, spiritual blessings, Israel did, which is where he goes to in a moment. And they did, and we do. People can be blessed spiritually with great privileges and still fail, still fall. It's not how you begin the race, it's how you... I've told you before about my great swimming event when I was in high school. I'm not a good swimmer, still am not a good swimmer, just like to float, really. <clears throat> I don't know what year I was in now. I think it was high school and probably early high school, seven or eight, New South Wales. And um, jumped in the water for the f first time at these swimming events. I didn't normally go in the events, but I don't know what possessed me. But anyway, I lined up and went in the event and dived in and swam flat out as fast as I possibly could. And I was actually winning to halfway. By then I thought, I've surely got to be at the end of this pool soon. It's about 50 metres. And I looked around and yep, I was winning and I looked up and I went, oh, good grief. I'm only halfway and I'm exhausted. I'd been spent in the first half. So then I slowly swam the last bit and I was out last. It's not how you begin, it's how you end. Well, at least I ended. Yeah, but I didn't get a prize, and I most certainly didn't get any honour, but I did get a reputation. <laughs> Not how you begin, it's how you end. Israel had experienced many of God's uh, privileges, spiritual blessings. That's what Paul is going to illustrate for us. You have a look at the list he goes through. Um, he says, don't forget you very proud Corinthians and self-confident, perhaps spiritually arrogant, a little bit overly secure. Don't forget that, you know, we're part of the people of God, of Israel. We are the, under the new covenant, we're the new people of God. And so our ancestors, those who went before us, 
They had the spiritual privilege of being baptised into Moses. They were miraculously delivered out of Egypt. This is the story. And it was a cloud that went before them by day and a pillar of fire at night. It was a physical, visible symbol of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. And that cloud was before them, was behind them, protected them, and Psalm 105, in fact, says it covered them. And so Paul says, when they came out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts for them, you know the story, and they go through on dry ground, water to the left, water to the right, cloud above them. So Paul uses the expression, they were baptised into Moses. It's a dry baptism, they weren't wet. They were all baptised into the, the one they were following. They identified with him. He was their deliverer. And just as they identified with him, so they, like us, they ate spiritual food, the manna that God provided for them. 600,000 men of 20 years of age and up came out of Egypt. 600,000 men over the age of 20. That's not counting the males under the age of 20, nor is it counting the women, nor is it counting children. Guestimates are that it's two to three million. So let's go in the middle. Let's say it's two and a half million people get miraculously delivered out of Egypt that one night, that Passover night. Go through the Red Sea. They must have been on a spiritual high. A few days later, they're hungry. They run out of supply, I guess. And God provides for them miraculously this manna, this what is it, this flaky white substance that came with the dew of the morning for 2.5 million people. There must have been thousands and thousands of tons of the stuff covering the landscape every day. Twice on Friday, because God didn't do it on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. They all ate that. They all drank from the rock, the spiritual drink, this rock, Exodus 17, that Moses struck because all the other waters were bitter and they couldn't have any. And so this water is miraculously supplied from the rock twice, once at the beginning and once at the end. And the summation is, Paul draws the conclusion, they even got the impression the rock was following them. Now, don't think literally, don't think there's this rock that's following them. It's rather wherever they went, there was a rock that would supply them with water. That's the idea. And the rock, Paul tells us, was Jesus, was Christ. The Lord Jesus was present with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. He was the one who delivered them. He was the one who was now providing for them. They had these spiritual privileges, just like you Corinthians do have, just like we do. And yet, despite all of those spiritual privileges, verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. That's the understatement of the passage. Most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. God was not pleased with most of them. Bible knowledge quiz. 600,000 men, 20 years of age and up, came out. How many men of that 600,000 went into the promised land? And the answer is two. Their names are oh, Joshua and Caleb. Very good. Not even Moses made it. God was not pleased 
with them. They had received salvation, deliverance, spiritual food, spiritual drink, the presence of God, the words and the laws and the rules of God, and they weren't happy. They longed for what they were missing. So were the Corinthians. God sends the 12 spies go in to spy out the land and Israel grumbles in their tents that night. And in Numbers, what is it, chapter 14, um, God gets cranky with them. Saved them, had blessed them, and then he said, that's it. You'll perish in this wilderness. And so for the next 38, 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. And each one of them eventually, 20 years of age and older, died, buried in the wilderness because they failed. They didn't follow through. It's not how you begin, it's how you end. They failed. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about their sense of reward. Our salvation, jumping ahead quickly, is in Jesus. He saves us and so we have a place in heaven. We have security. Our name is there. We're not talking about that. We're talking about between now, how we begin this Christian life, this race, and how we end it. That how we live that life, how we say no to temptation, how we say no to self, how we serve him in obedience, how we live a life that pleases him, that will determine our ranking, our position in heaven. We have a place in heaven, guaranteed. But whereabouts in heaven will we be? And the old adage is, well, I don't care if I'm in the back blocks of, in a little tent way at the back, at least I'll be in heaven, I won't be in hell. That's the wrong attitude. J.C. Ryle, a bishop of, Anglican bishop of Liverpool in England, 1900, made the observation, he said, when we see Jesus, when we get there, we're going to bow before him. And he surmises, and we are going to say, think, feel, why didn't I serve him more? Why wasn't I more obedient? Why wasn't I more committed? Because then you will realise what you are going to miss out on. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3. He says that, you know, if, depending on what you build with, gold, silver, precious metal, you get rewarded. But if you build with wood, hay, straw, you give God the leftovers, you give him the, the half-hearted effort, you may not even serve him, may be preoccupied with idols and other things in your life. Whatever it is, they will be burnt up. The person will be saved, but they will suffer loss. That's what Paul says, suffer loss. And that's what Ryle is trying to explain, that there will be a sense of loss somehow when we see the Lord. So the Apostle Paul is writing to warn the Corinthians and the Spirit of God records it to warn us. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, they made the golden calf. They committed sexual immorality with the Moabite and the Midianite women. In the book of Numbers, it says 24,000 died. And here it says, Paul says, 23,000 died. And you can read the commentators and read the journal articles. And you can read hundreds of pages on, did Paul make a, sna a mistake? Did he have a brain snap? Did he just misremember? You can do the creative thing like some commentators do. No, actually, it's, it's 23,500 died. Paul rounds it down, Book of Numbers rounds it up. Well, that's very creative, but that means they're both wrong, doesn't it? Don't be too concerned about that. If it is an issue for you, come and have a chat to me. 
I'm very good at saying, I don't know what it is. It's a very minor point in a whole lot of things and it's probably deliberate and there are reasons for that and I don't have time to go into it. They grumbled, Paul says. Hello? Hello? <laughs> it's very embarrassing when your phone rings, isn't it? <laughs> Excuse me, I'm having a little brain snap. I... <laughs> People's phones went off in church and God was not pleased with them. <laughs> yep. They actually grumbled in their tents and they grumbled. And At one point, you remember the story um, in Numbers, I think it's 16, it doesn't matter, it's in Numbers. No, it's in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. Three guys, uh, Korah, Nathan and Abiram. Or something like that. They grumbled. They wanted to be leaders. They didn't think Moses was all that special or Aaron. And they went back to their tents and God let the earth open up and swallow them alive. Just them and their families, their tents, gone. As a sign, don't grumble against the Lord. Don't grumble against what God is doing. In this case, it was grumbling against Moses, their leader. There were other times. There are ten times I've counted through the book of Exodus all the way through down to um, Deuteronomy, book of Numbers. Ten times Israel is recorded as grumbling. They had spiritual privileges. So do we. And it didn't protect them from temptation or from tests or from being disqualified, as the Apostle Paul is illustrating from chapter 9. In ministry today, just as an aside, it's important for us to note that we also can still be disqualified from ministering. I think this is the background of Hebrews chapter 6, that very difficult chapter. I think it's talking about people who are following Jesus, serving Jesus, but they're flatlined. They're no longer following hard after him. They're no longer serving him. They're no longer passionate about him. They're just Christians in name, going through the routine. Three ways we can be disqualified, three ways God acts in our life is firstly, he removes the anointing. He removes the power from your life. And, and ministry, Christian life, becomes just something rote, mechanical. You go through the motions, but it does, it's not connecting. It's not deeply meaningful and moving for you. That's God's discipline in your life. He's disqualified you. Like in an athletic event, you can be disqualified. You know, like in a walking event, you'll be walking along, if they break one of the rules of contact or the leg's not straight enough, they can get a yellow card. They can get two yellow cards, then they get a red one. The red one means they're disqualified and they're out. Well, so too in ministry. If you're giving in to temptation, if you're not being fully obedient or to doing what the Lord wants you to be doing, then he can disqualify you, push you aside. So third way, second way he does it is he can pull you out of ministry. You can be removed from ministry, so there is no longer any more performance of ministry, no continuance. The door is closed. And the third way, of course, is the ultimate one. It's he takes your life. It's time for you to come home. You're doing enough damage down here. Time to come. And you enter into his presence at a time when it wasn't supposed to happen. But because of the choices you made, it has an effect upon your life. The good news is God can restore Number one and number two, if we repent. 
get our lives right. I just remembered I was asked to give a message when I got up here too. Somebody has a, a white SUV, four-wheel drive I guess, outside and you've got a dog, either it's your dog or somebody else has got a dog and they've changed it to your car. Well, we're just concerned that it's pretty, there's a cold breeze blowing out there, it's pretty cold. And so if that's your dog, we'll just close our eyes and pray so that you can sneak out. And if you're not concerned, if it's not your dog, well, maybe it's your car, I don't know. <clears throat> God was not pleased with these Israelites. And 5,998 of them, whatever, it, no, yeah, you know, all except two of them perished. Spiritual privileges do not give us a basis for presuming on God's mercy or ignoring his standards. Oh, I can do this sin. I can give in to this temptation. God will forgive me. He always does. That's a very dangerous attitude to have. Yeah, he is a forgiving God. You need to repent. And repentance is a change of mind. This is wrong. And not only do I need to stop it, it's I need to not do this again and mean it. And forgiveness comes when you confess it. Well, Paul goes on to talk about exactly that. The temptations will come. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to everybody. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted or tested, you will, there will always be a way of escape provided for you. So Paul has illustrated his point. Spiritual privilege do not preserve us against being disqualified. And spiritual privileges only prepare us for the encountering of testing and temptation as we go through this life. Temptations will come. Satan sends them to make us fall, to stumble. God allows them to make us grow, to strengthen us. Temptations are not un unique. And they're not unique in terms of everybody gets them, even Jesus was tempted. And they're not unique in terms of whatever your temptation is, you're not alone. Not everybody has your temptation. But there are other people who have your temptation. Nothing is unique. And Paul says they can be avoided. God always provides a way of escape. Sometimes it might be difficult to find, difficult to see. But the reality is, the promise is, God says there's always a way out. Israel never took it. When Israel got into difficulty, they grumbled or they committed sexual immorality or they bowed down to idols, they made wrong choices. They didn't look up and say, God, help. Can you strengthen me? Can you help me? Can you enable me not to give in to this test or this temptation? And God promises he'll provide a way of escape. It's a bit like you're in a valley and you've got an enemy army coming one way and the army coming the other way and there is a secret little pathway up the mountain. Effort will be required. Climbing could be difficult, but there is a way out of the difficulty. We don't have to give in. We do. We don't have to, this passage is saying. So God provides the escape and he's waiting for us to grow through it, to resist temptation all the way. And the more you resist it, in fact, the harder it will become. That's the problem. We resist temptation 
and we never get to the point of resisting it all the way. Jesus did all of the time. So he's the only one who knows the full extent of the pressure that temptation brings to bear upon us. Because many times we give in before we get to that point, don't we? Paul is encouraging us not to do so. Then he says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So this is the point. This is still the context of answering this issue about Christians in Corinth and eating meat offered to idols and spiritual privileges bring with it certain responsibilities is his argument. You will be tempted. But the principle here is flee idolatry. Don't have anything to do with it. Israel gave into idolatry and God was not pleased with them and they were disqualified. He took them home. Paul says, I speak to sensible people. And then he goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper. When we have communion, we have the cup of thanksgiving. Are we not participating? That's the key word in the blood of Christ. When we eat the bread, are we not participating in the body of Christ? We're actually participating in and sharing in. Not just this truth. And there's no magical transformation of the elements. But there is a spiritual, mysterious participation. Something real is happening. Paul says, verse 18, same thing with Israel, with the sacrifices. Then he gets to the point. Verse 19, do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything? No, it's not. But the sacrifices that pagans make, while they make it to an idol that they carved or that they made, and while it's nothing and it's meaningless, the reality is... Who was behind motivating that person to build that statue? Satan. The demons are behind that. They're the ones who are deceiving and deluding, and they're the ones trying to get you off course. Now, this is the Corinthian problem and our problem. For the Corinthians, it was manifested in the pressure to want to go back to the temple, because in the temple was not just the idols and the sacrifices, and okay, we don't do that. But in the temple were the restaurants and it was where the best food was and the best music was and the best restaurants were and that's where the most famous, the rich and the famous people of Corinth went. That's where the good times were. So they didn't want to do the idol worship thing but they did want to party. And they wanted to hang on to that. And that becomes the point. Biblical idolatry is not what we do with our body of bowing down before some statue or idol or God. It's what's in our heart. And if what is in our heart becomes more important, if something in our heart becomes more important than our love and our obedience to God, then for us that thing is becoming an idol. And that's what Paul is talking about. It's what John talks about and the others talk about and New Testament authors talk about. Flee idols. Make sure you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Number one, first, always. And don't let anything or anyone become more important than you than him. Well, examine yourselves. Do you have an idol? If you have an idol, if something or someone has become more important to you than the Lord and serving him, then be warned. God will not be pleased. And he may disqualify you from ministry. He may strike And if your affections are so neatly wrapped up in this idol that you are embracing, 
that in striking the idol, God may very well at the same time have some fallout on you. And you'll be led to ask the question, Lord, why did you do that? Why did you hurt me? Because he loves you too much to allow you to go that way. He's got a jealousy for you, Paul will go on to talk about. An idol is anyone, could be a person, or anything that is more important to you than God. Could be sports. Was for me before I became a Christian. Sport was my idol. My grandfather, in fact, said, sport's your religion. I was fully devoted to Australian rules football. So it could be sport that you play. It could be sport that you follow. You could be so devoted. You know all the statistics. You follow the team. You're passionate about it. You know more about your team and your sports stuff than you do about the Bible. Be careful. Could be your career. Could be hobbies. Could be addictions. Could be watching TV. Could be anything. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with any of those things, but it's when they or it's become more important to me than him. Manifested in my daily time with him, manifested in my church worship, manifested in my service for him. Jesus said it. If someone or something becomes more important to you, then you've got a new love. You've got a new master. And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. It's him or it. Flee it, the idol. That's what Paul is teaching. And then he goes on to talk about this association with demons and the Lord's Supper. Let me just give you some very quick background. I can't see the clock, so I don't know what time it is. What's the time? Okay, can you tell me when it's half past ten? <clears throat> in, um, in the ancient world, not just Corinth, but in the ancient world, the people had this, this mindset. They believed that the world was filled with spirits, ghosts, gods, good and bad. And they believed sometimes that these spirits were in the idols that they had made and carved. The demons were, these spirits were in everything. This is their worldview. It's in the trees, in the mountains, in the rivers, in the springs, in the trees, the rocks. It's in the wind, in the light, everything. There's a spirit in it. And so when people made these statues to represent the God, then what is behind that is this demonic motivation to get people not to worship the true and living God, but to worship this false God. And so whenever, therefore, you worshipped, sacrificed to an idol, a false God, you're actually participating with demons. That's Paul's point. While idols are nothing and gods don't exist, there is a spiritual entity and they're not good, they're bad, and they're demonic. And that's what's behind the idols and temple. And so they also believe that when you sacrificed an animal to that god, that idol, they believe that the god not only received the sacrifice, but the god went into the sacrifice. 
So you give some to the God, some of the animals, and the rest of it you keep for having for yourself for a feast or you give some to the priest or whatever you do with it. But the God was now in it. So when you ate it, the God was actually going into you. That's what they believed. And Paul is therefore saying, um, Christians cannot and must not have anything to do with idols or with eating meat which has been clearly sacrificed to idols. And now he's going to go on and to apply it. Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. People believed the demons, the gods, went to the sacrifice. Paul said, rubbish. It's meat. You can eat it. Just don't ask questions. Earth is the Lord's. If you get invited to somebody's house, verse 27, and they invite you, go. Believers should be mixing, mingling with unbelievers for the purpose of the gospel, build bridges to them, go. Have a, have a barbecue, whatever it is, and enjoy it. But if someone there, whether it's the host or whether it's a guest or it's a slave who's serving you, if someone, anyone, says to you, this meat's been sacrificed to an idol, then don't eat it. Because their worldview is there's a demon, the God has entered that meat. And if you eat that meat, that God's going to come into you. Now, how can that God come into you if you say you're a Christian and Jesus is in you? So have nothing to do with it. Follow the argument? Does it happen? No. Do they think it happens? Yes. And so based upon what they think is going to be happening, the Apostle Paul limits himself. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, and don't eat it. For the sake of the one who told you. Why did they tell you? Are they trying to trap you? Trying to trick you? Are they testing you? And he goes on to imply, uh, you're going to be blamed and attacked over this. You're going to be judged. You're going to be denounced for eating it. It could very well be another Christian that you're at this barbecue with, with this non-Christian, and the Christian says to you, that meat's been sacrificed to an idol. Well then, for the weak Christian's sake, don't eat. That's his argument. So we are free in Christ and we are protected in him. But it doesn't give us permission to be foolish. It gives us freedom to make wise choices. Everything is lawful for us. But not everything is helpful for us or for others. Not everything helps others or builds them up. And we have a responsibility not just to consider ourselves, what do we think about this, but what do others think about this? And if my participation in it is going to hurt or mislead or harm them, then I am responsible and I need not to do that. I need to avoid it. So if it's a test or if you're troubled by it, don't. So here is the principles, what Paul tells the Corinthians, and the principles apply to us. If you know it's idle meat, if you know it's been sacrificed to an idol, don't eat it. If you're troubled by and you're not sure if it's been offered to an idol, don't eat it. Don't go against your conscience. But if you don't know, and if you 
don't ask, and you're not troubled by it, it's just a nice T-bone, then eat it. You're free to do so. But you'll have to take all of those other considerations into account. What are others around me thinking and feeling? Verse 29, why should I, by my choices, arouse condemnation from another towards me? Why expose myself to that sort of attack? Verse 31, instead aim to please God and to glorify him. That's the goal. Him first. What honours you, Lord? This nice T-bone, which has come from the temple, which has come through the meat market, which my non-Christian neighbour has barbecued for us, and I'm now there eating it with him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and you are the provider of all good things. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Let's eat. Follow? You need to think through the implications of that, of the choices you make in your life as you seek to follow Jesus. Don't ignore your brother and sister because that will be offensive to the Lord and he won't be pleased. The Lord Jesus, in conclusion, sends us as sheep into the midst of wolves. Just think about that analogy, that metaphor. Sheep sent out to eat with wolves. He's with us, empowering us, protecting us, but sending us. We live in enemy territory. The wrong response is to withdraw, to isolate ourselves and have nothing to do with the world. That's the totally wrong response. The right response is, Lord, you save me, you're sovereign, I am here at your appointment. Help me to be a light shining in the darkness. Help me to avoid idols. It's easy. I don't go to the temple and I don't worship idols. I don't look like I participate in the temple at all. Stay away from the temple. But don't stay away from the people who go to the temple. And I don't need to stay away from the meat that comes from the temple. But I do need to avoid idols, not just false gods, but anything or anyone becoming more important in my life than what he is. Think of it like radioactive material, radioactive waste. When that counter goes off, you need to leave immediately. You need to get out of there. You need to avoid it because it will contaminate you and eventually kill you. That's how we should regard idols, as radioactive waste. Jesus sends us to be sheep in the midst of wolves. Avoid idols wherever we go. It's how we live and how we finish which will determine our position, our rewards in heaven. Not our place. That's guaranteed through Jesus. But our rewards. If you're compromising in your walk with the Lord Jesus now, then you, be warned, you run the very great risk of being disqualified. Maybe you already have been disqualified. Well, God is a God who restores. Be time to confess, time to come back before him and to humble yourself. And he, in his goodness and kindness, may restore you to ministry. He may restore you to a different ministry. 
But whatever it is and all that we do, let us aim to please him, to glorify him every day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, We make it our ambition to please him every day. Our ambition, pleasing him. We're going to pray. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you have sent us, saved us and sent us into the world. The world of people that we love and care for. Give us wisdom, Lord, in knowing how we can live authentically and live like you in the midst of people who don't know you. We ask that through our life, as we make choices to avoid idols, of keeping you first in our life, of living lives of consistency, that when we stumble, then we confess, we repent, we get up and we continue. But nonetheless, Lord, through our lives, we pray that you would be pleased to bring others into a saving relationship with yourself in order that God might be glorified. Help us each day to please him. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat>